Well, today is a day that needs no introduction. Those of us who were alive at the time of the tragic events of 9-11 remember them clearly. As a matter of fact, most of us that were alive when 9-11 happened can probably remember exactly where we were when we heard what had happened and what was happening. I mean, I can tell you exactly where I was because it was quite traumatic. Robin and I had just recently moved to West Virginia and were, had, had been newly married, were living on our own, and were several hours from family and friends. And I remember coming home to the apartment that we had, the townhouse that we were living in, and uh, we had, they had not turned off the cable from the previous residence, so we could still get the news channels. And so sometimes between classes, I would come down and just see what was going on in the world. And normally it was, there was nothing to see and just moving on with our day. But that day, when I came down and turned on the TV, I saw the footage of the smoking tower. The first tower, and they were talking about the Pentagon, what had happened, and they were, nobody really knew what was going on, and it was on every single channel. And as I sat there, and perhaps you were like this, I was watching it, looking and thinking, surely this cannot be reality. This cannot be happening right now. And as I watched in real time on TV, as that first tower was smoking, as the second plane crashed headlong into the second plane and listened to the horror. I mean, it's one thing for you to hear the news later, but when you hear the horror in the news anchor's voice saying, surely that did just not happen. Was that another plane? Was that, can someone get me confirmation? Was that another plane? What just happened? And I remember watching that thinking, what is happening? What are we going to do? Within moments, we got, Robin came home and we had notification that they were closing classes. And so we began talking about what were we going to do. And we talked about going home. But, but apparently Charleston, West Virginia and Jaeger Airport is a high priority target. So we could not get out of West Virginia. We were stuck. And I remember watching helplessly as all of this was going on and feeling very, very divided, very fractured, very cut off from, from the people that I knew, from the people that I loved, and feeling very fractured as a country, quite literally, because commerce and, and, and transportation had been so shut down and affected by the event. And I remember being very, very discouraged, obviously. But do you remember what happened in the days immediately following 9-11? It's interesting because we went from one moment being a very fractured nation, literally and physically, to the very next day, within just days, we saw a coming together of the American populace that we've not seen before, maybe, maybe once with, with the, the attack of Pearl Harbor, but very rarely have we seen a unity like we did following 9-11. And I remember that 19 days after the terrible events of 9-11 on a Tuesday morning, then-President George W. Bush addressed a joint session of Congress with these opening words. In the normal course of events, presidents come to this chamber to report on the State of the Union. Tonight, no such report is needed. It has already been delivered by the American people. We have seen it in the courage of passengers who rushed the terrorists to save others on the ground. We have seen the state of our union and the endurance of rescuers working past exhaustion. We've seen the unfurling of flags, the lighting of candles, the giving of blood, the saying of prayers in English and Hebrew and Arabic. We've seen the decency of a loving and giving people who have made the grief of strangers their own. My fellow citizens, for the last nine days, the entire world has seen for itself the state of the union, and it is strong. As a nation, we've not always been united in our opinions and our ideologies, but we have shown ourselves over and over and over again in the midst of the worst of trials to be a people who are truly indivisible. And Paul closes his letter with some final greetings and encouragements 
bringing attention to the community created in Christ Jesus. He addresses his fellow citizens, which includes you and I, citizens who are to be indivisible, even as they do not agree on matters of opinion, because we stand under one banner. We stand as one people, as the people of God. If you would, turn with me to Romans 16 as we read this final chapter of Paul in his letter to the Romans. Paul says this, Romans 16, starting in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friends, Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jews. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent, about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother, Cordus, send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed, made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Dr. Myers did a much better job with the names this week. He must have practiced. You are right. <laughs> but you also might be thinking to yourselves, as I did, as I looked at the passage last week, where in the world can we go with this? As you look at it, it just seems like a random list of names. I mean, sure, there are some names that we can connect back to Acts, and we understand that Paul knows who those people are. But, but why is Paul 
ending the letter with so many names, then why would we take the time to take a Sunday and, and, and do a whole message on just this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at it and see if there's any meaning in this mess. Well, I think there are, is. And I think the first thing that we've got to see in this, in the interconnectivity of all of these names and the people that Paul knew, that they knew, uh, that, that there's, there's an understanding that we need to, to take from this, and it's this, that the kingdom of God is best experienced and expanded through community. The kingdom of God is best experienced and expanded through community. I believe I mentioned this earlier in the series uh, about how the Lone Ranger was a lie. Right there, I'll just briefly touch on it again, but remember, it wasn't ever just the Lone Ranger. If it was just the Lone Ranger, he would have just been a dead cowboy in a desert. That would have been it. But it wasn't just the Lone Ranger. He had Tonto constantly saving his hind end. He had Silver, his horse. The Lone Ranger was, was a committee. They were saving the West by committee. There was a community that, that kind of kept them afloat. And you and I have to understand that as followers of Jesus, that we were never meant to do this alone. It is one of the great lies of American Christianity, the Western civilization and the Christianity that we have over here. That it's all about us becoming the ideal man or the ideal woman. We've made the gospel, and we're going to look at this I think a couple of times today. We've made the gospel about us. We've made ourselves the main character. And yes, Christ died for us. And yes, Christ does amazing things in and through us. But you and I are not the main character. Jesus is. And we best experience him as the body of Christ through our interdependence and connection one to another. And the kingdom only can spread to the four corners of the world through multiple people taking the gospel wherever they go. The kingdom of God is best experienced and expanded through community. Our connections as sisters and brothers and co-laborers for the gospel should inspire us to support and join with those doing the work of the ministry with and for us. Note that Paul utilizes the, the word greet no less than 16 times in this text. Now, th this, this word greet is not just a casual, hey, say hey when you see them if you get a chance. It is actually a command. Hey, make sure you find this person and follow up with them. The expectation from Paul is that all of these people are going to receive this letter at one point in time and that they will, in fact, receive his greetings. And that they will do it together. There is a communal expectation. Now as we consider this list of names, Paul mentions approximately two dozen people by name in the network of Roman churches. Including two pastors slash church planners. Two apostles and two apostles who did time with him. Paul greets Two prominent households in Rome, one of which, Narcissus, there is historical record that he had direct connection to the emperor Claudius and that he probably played a role in getting Christians allowed back into Rome after Claudius had expelled them. He greets at least two specific house churches. Now why? Why does Paul go through all of these greetings? Why is he name dropping all of these names? Well, in part because Paul, while he would have been known certainly to the house churches throughout the Roman network, as well as throughout the rest of the Christian world at that time, as a prominent missionary having already written a few letters, while he would have been known to them, he wouldn't have been known by them. Now there's a subtle difference. There's a subtle difference. For instance, I'll explain it this way. Billy Graham was known by or, or, or to all of us, right? We, we know, anybody in the room not know who Billy Graham is? I mean, that, that's fair. That's fair. Most, most famous, that's, that's okay. We'll take uh, all of the people that raised their hand are under the age of 13, okay? So that is fair. I apologize. But most of us know of Billy Graham. Any of you know him personally? Any of you sit down with him and have dinner with him? 
Any of you have the, the informality that, that you, hey, for me, it's just Bill or BG because we're not formal around here, right? Absolutely not. He is known, we know of him, but we don't actually know him. It's the same thing for these people, but it's less so because it's not, the, the media isn't as, wasn't as prolific at the time. So Paul is making, essentially making his own network of connections. He is establishing his authority as an apostle and, and, and giving names of people who could then validate his message and his messenger. Paul is providing uh, this people that will vouch for the legitimacy of what he is saying to them. He creates a, a connect the dots of sorts that demonstrates not only the connectivity in the Roman church, but how that church is influenced and impacted by the church throughout Asia at the time. He's made a bunch of connections, drawing them all together, right? Like It's, it's like the thing online with the movie star uh, Kevin, Kevin Bacon, like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, where every star in Hollywood is only six people just removed from star Kevin Bacon. And it's expanding now that the crowd is getting younger, but it's the same thing. Paul's like, look, there's only a couple of de- degrees of separation between you and me. This seemingly random list of names serves crucial purposes, and it provides important information for you and I that we might miss as we just read over it. We like to read the names, and and we just kind of move past. I've learned over the last few years that you just can't dismiss the names and move on. Paul is giving us some important information, so what might we miss here? Well, first, one of the things that we've got to notice is that both men and women played vital roles, and served at every level of leadership in the early church. Now, why do I say that? Let's start at the beginning, and let's just walk our way through it. Paul starts in verse 1 and 2 by providing an introduction and a commendation for a deacon named Phoebe. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Well, the word that Paul uses here is diakonos. Now, you may look at your translation, and there are different ways that they translate this. Some of your translations may say, Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centria. And you may say to yourself, well, which is right? Does it say that she's a deacon, or does it say that she is a servant of the church of Centria? Yes. It actually says both. But the reality is every time that it says deacon, it says both. Because the word diakonos means servant. That's what the word means. So when it says, in, in your translation, if it says a, a servant in, from the church of Centria, that is correct. If it says a deacon from the church in Centria, that is also correct. Now, why, why, why do some say deacon and some say servant? Well, there's some translative issues that we won't get into. We won't get into the weeds on that. But suffice to say, by this point in history, the word deacon, used in connection with a local church, is not a random happenstance. They are specifically saying that she was given the title of deacon and filled that role in that church. Well, where do we see this? All right, we'll turn back to Acts chapter 6. We're going to make some connections today. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic or Greek Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven, from among, seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so they do it. They choose seven men, seven all that have Greek names, and, and that they are going to do this distribution of food. The apostles in Jerusalem were so overworked by the work of the ministry as the church was growing, preaching, teaching, studying, visiting, and caring for the sick and the poor, that they were so busy that they couldn't handle it all. 
So, in order to make sure that everyone was cared for, they selected seven men, diaconane trapace, diaconane trapace, that would serve tables. They would be table waiters. They would, they would take care of all of these physical, material needs of people, and they would be charged with the oversight of these resources of the church to essentially do the pastoral care to the people of the church. That was their job. Well, what were the apostles going to do? Well, the apostles would then focus on prayer and diaconia to lagu, service of the word. So they would focus all of their attention on studying and, and, and praying and spiritual direction and visioning of the church while this other group would focus on pastoral care. Do you understand that that is what our deacons are for? That it, is, it was never the intent in the Bible. And you will not be able to show me one passage where the primary job of the pastor or even secondary job of the pastor is to visit hospitals. That was the deacon's. And it was specifically so that the pastor could focus on preaching the word. They were carrying some of the load. Now that's not to say that, that it should only be the deacons. We all should be visiting the sick. We should all be caring for the hungry. But there were specific people with a specific title, with specific leadership in the church to do these things. They were the deacons. And we see in this passage that this woman, Phoebe, is one of those. She is in one of these prominent leadership positions taking care of the, the people in their community. Now, we, we've been clever about it here. And in, in, in our over history, we've, we've separated these things out. And if you look at what our deaconesses and deacons do, there, there's really just a separating of, of the roles into what we think are feminine and masculine. And that's not biblical, to be completely honest. It, it is a shared leadership role in the church. And we see here Phoebe. And her connection to this specific local church indicates rather clearly that Phoebe served in a prominent leadership position in her church. Not only that, but most scholars agree that, that, that Phoebe was Paul's courier. That part of her job was to carry that letter, and as Paul's courier, her job was to, once she got to the churches, to perform the letter. Not just to read it, but there, there, there was a, some kind of a dramatization that went with the reading of the letter and, and rises and falls in, in the, the verbiage and voicing to communicate certain points. And that Phoebe would have been the one that was charged to read and do the public proclamation of the gospel that Paul was sending in these churches. She was to preach to these churches. Not only that, but... She, having been the one who was with Paul when he wrote the letter, having looked at it early, was probably, well not probably, she was most likely the expert there in the community to answer any questions. So, scholars once again believe that she was probably the first commentator on the book of Romans. In, in providing incredibly valuable theological education. So we see Phoebe, a deacon. Then the very next thing we see in, in verse 3 of chapter 16 says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. Now we may recognize those names because Paul mentions them a lot. And if we turn back again to Acts chapter 18 this time, we'll see Paul mentioning them. In Acts chapter 18, starting in um, verse 18, Paul says, um, excuse me, verse 1, Paul says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come to Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because, of Cla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So we see Paul meets this ministry pair, and they are essentially... They, they are essentially refugees. They are Christian refugees who have been cast out of Rome and are trying to make their way as they are living in exile. So Paul works with them. They are partners in his, his physical business, his occupation as tent makers, but they are also partners in, in ministry and preaching and teaching. We see that just a few verses over in chapter 18, starting in verse 24. It says, Meanwhile... A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So we see something here, and and there are a few things that we've got to observe about Priscilla and Aquila that are important for us. First, we notice in this text that it is Priscilla and Aquila that bring Apollos to Christ. He he understood correctly about Christ, but only through the baptism, baptism of John. And they explained, tying it more correctly to Jesus... And and the baptism of Jesus. Now this Apollos is no random guy. There's actually dispute, now you may or may not know this, about who wrote the book of of Hebrews. We don't actually know. But people know that it's someone who was mighty in the scriptures, leading many to believe that it was probably Apollos. That Apollos was likely the one that wrote that particular letter. We don't know, and that's just speculation. Interesting thought, though. But what is important and what is known by the passage is that it is Priscilla and Aquila who taught him, who educated him on the truth, who brought him to a more correct understanding. Now, name order mattered in the first century. The more prominent the person, the the more likely their name was to come first. As a matter of fact, if you look back to the book of Acts, you'll notice an interesting transition that happens in the life and ministry of Saul slash Paul and Barnabas. When they start, and for like the first half of his ministry, they are always introduced to us in the text as Barnabas and Saul. About midway through, we see a shift happen, and it becomes Saul and, or Paul and Barnabas. Because the more prominent person and more prominent voice always came first. The fact that Priscilla and Aquila are with only two exceptions exceptions named as Priscilla and Aquila tells us something very important. That Priscilla was the team lead. That she was likely the lead voice. And we go further and it tells us that they have a house church that is meeting in their house. Priscilla and Aquila are presumably the the church planners and the preaching pastors of that church. And using the text and our understanding of first century order of things, she is likely the dominant voice in that house church. So here we have this pastoral team, husband and wife, man and woman leading this church. Then we go further. Paul greets a, a, a man named Epinetus, who was the first convert in Asia. He greets Mary, another woman who worked very hard for you. And then we see greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I. Adronicus, in this case, remember we talked about name order just a moment ago. Adronicus is named first with Junia being named second, but what is important is that both of them are noted as, quote, outstanding among the apostles, or prominent among the apostles. Early church writings and the grammar of the original Greek bends towards them not just being known by and appreciated by the apostles, but but them actually being in apostolic ministry. That these two people, both Adronicus and Junia, were apostles. Now you may say to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, there were only 12 apostles. That is false. There were not just 12 apostles. There were the original 12 apostles that were Christ's apostles, but you look through Christ's original disciples, but you look throughout the scriptures and you will see that there are several people, including Barnabas, who are mentioned as apostles for Jesus Christ. The qualifications for that was that they had to have seen the risen Christ for themselves. Paul is not one of the original 12. Never was. When he was voted in, when he was brought in by Christ on the road to Damascus, that did not automatically put him into the original 12. The original 12 voted in their own member. That last guy, who I believe is Matthias, I don't even remember because he's inconsequential to the story. But other than the fact that he sat in as an apostle, and I don't mean to demean him, but none of us remember his name. We remember Paul. 
And the fact is there were many apostles that were not the original 12. They were people sent out into the world, and we often qualify them just as being missionaries, but it was well beyond that. They were early church leaders that were setting theology, that were setting practice, that were ordering how the church was to function. And these two people are these highly skilled and respected apostles. Dr. Scott McKnight, a professor at Northern Seminary, says this in his book, The um, Blue Parakeet. He writes, as the story of the Bible unfolds, not only were there 12 apostles, but there were other apostles. Some have called them missionaries. And while this is in the right direction, the term apostle can only mean that they were specially sent because of special giftedness. And they would have both been church planting, teaching, theology forming leaders in the churches they planted. Speaking of Junia and Adronicus. Husband and wife were both equals to Paul by position, apostles, and exceptional ones at that. I don't, don't want to get into the argument. I will tell you that, that the American Baptist Church does affirm the ordination of women. And we as a church have ordained at least one woman pastor that I know of, and I make no apologies for that. My hope with all of my heart is one day that I will get to on this stage ordain Reverend Michaela Myers. That is the dream of my heart, and I pray to God that that gets to happen. But we know that women and men, through even this list, but throughout other points of Scripture, and I would love to do a series on it, but we don't have time for it today. Women and men alike are called and equipped by God to fill important roles in the life and leadership of the local church. And this includes every aspect of ministry. Preaching, teaching, feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, visiting the lonely, etc., If the church of Jesus Christ is to be all that God created it to be, each of us must be empowered and engaged according to our giftedness that we might reach the world with the truth of the gospel. And we see both women and men serving in important roles in the early church, even here in this list that Paul gives us. But further, we see a connectivity here. We see that that we are the family of God and our love and unity should be demonstrated in word and deed. In verse 16, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greetings. Now, if you read that or you hear me read that and you're like, that's kind of sketchy. I agree. And in fact, the first century Roman world agreed. Now, the church in the early first century was actually very secretive, which there's, we understand why, right? Everywhere they turned around, there were people trying to kill them. They had back at home where the church developed, the Jews were trying to, every time they got into public, they got arrested and beat up, right? So let's, let's just be a little quiet with this. Then, as things began to expand in the Roman Empire, it got even worse. They started feeding them to wild animals for a public spectacle and lighting them for backyard luminaries. And so they're like, you know what? It might be best for us to like practice this in an intelligent way for right now. But the word got out about how they practiced, and this holy kiss was a thing. And they believed in a highly sexualized Roman world. Understand, we look at the reality of our, our, our culture right now and we're like, I don't see how it could ever be worse. The fact is, it was. The Roman Empire was terrible. And their idea of human sexuality was as debased as they get. But here's the interesting thing. Because their mind was so debased, they hear this thing about churches who have brothers and sisters who are greeting one another with a holy kiss and they're like whoa 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 what are they doing in these churches like this is over the line even for us and we're for some sketchy stuff and they believed that they that's one of the reasons there's historical record for this you can look it up that they believed that this this incestuous stuff was happening in the church no record that it was happening but that was the accusation that was used to to accost the christians It was extremely misunderstood. Now, truth is that this is actually still in practice in many parts of the world. I remember when I went to India for the first time, my my good friend Rob Ely, who was taking me there, warned me when we were on the plane. He's like, now listen, fellas, when we get there, you need to understand something. These people are very affectionate. Like, and it won't be like woman to man, man to woman, but 
man to man and woman to woman and understand that everybody is going to want to touch you. They're going to want, like you'll be walking, you'll be walking down the street and a six foot three dude will just grab your hand and you just need to be okay with it. You're going to walk into a church and all of the dignitaries of that church are going to want to kiss you on your cheeks and you need to be okay with it. And listen, you all know me. Your boy does not have a poker face at all. And so the first time some big bearded man came up to kiss me, my face said it all. Now, and I'm recoiling a little bit, and I'm trying to be okay with it, but this American standing in front of you, I confess, between you and Jesus and the world right now, that I struggled with it. It did not feel right. But Paul says, hey, look, we're to greet one another with a holy kiss. And, and while I'm not suggesting we should reinstate it here at First Baptist Church, COVID and all, but while I'm not suggesting we should reinstate it here at the church, I do wonder if we haven't lost something by letting it go by the wayside. Because you know what it did? When, when, we, when we greet one another here at First Baptist Church right now, how do we normally do it? Someone tell me. We shake hands. You know what this naturally does for me when I shake someone's hand? Cole, come here for a second, buddy. Cole Simmons is going to be an example. This is Cole Simmons. He's been playing bass for us. Cole, I want you to shake my hand. You know what this does? Sure, but you know what else it does? Keeps Cole at a safe distance. Like, I know that it's my right hand and it's my strong hand, but if Cole gets too froggy, I can always put him down. Right? Cole, I promise I'm not going to kiss you, but this is going to be a little bit awkward, okay, bud? You know what happens now? No, no, come on, bring it in, buddy. Bring it in. You know what we've just done? We've removed all the distance. We've closed the distance. There is no defensive mechanism right now, is there, Cole? No. Right now, there's complete trust. Cole is hating his life at this moment in time. But we've closed the distance and we've created a, a, a fellowship. There, there's, it doesn't matter that I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church and 42 years old and that Cole is 15 years old and, and a member of the band and uh, going to high school. That we've removed that barrier. We're just brothers. Right, Cole? Thanks, man. Give it up for Cole. That wasn't in my notes and Cole's now thinking, man, I am never sitting in the front again. But there's a truth to it. You know, I, I am a hugger. I'm a toucher. It is what it is. I, and I, I, it's a little bit different when, like, the person that you don't know is holding your hand. I get that. But I got used to it even in India. And there's an informality and, and there is an affection there that is lost in the formality of a handshake. In the early church, Paul says, and this is a command, greet one another with a holy kiss. He's saying to them, remember that we are familial and remember to have an affection for one another. Which shouldn't surprise us because what did Jesus say was going to be the definitive marker of his followers? By this they will know that you are my followers, by your love for one another. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We are all God's children, saved by his grace through faith, brought into one family, bound together in his service through the blood of Jesus Christ. May we remember that. May we seek to develop affection in our hearts one for another. And it's only when we have that affection that we'll be willing to forgive one another, that we'll be willing to serve one another. That we'll be able to, to hold one another up and bring one another along when we're struggling. May we truly manifest the reality of being the family of God. Now Paul goes beyond that. Not just showing the connectivity of the church. But Paul gives this really weird section. Because if you read the text and you look at it, you'll note that in the first 16 verses, Paul is greet, 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 greet. Here's these important people. And then in the last, just right after this section that we're about to read, Paul says, Timothy greets. Teratus greets. And he's like, greeting, greeting, greeting. And so you have this greeting sandwich with greetings on both sides. And then in the middle, there's this really weird warning. Look at all these connections. This person sends you greeting. Greet this person. And in the middle, Paul says, 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Beware that which divides and distracts from the work of the gospel. Beware that which divides and distracts from the work of the gospel. Now, this is an occupational hazard of the availability of God's grace to all people and our responsibility and the command to accept all people is that all among us won't always be of us. Now, there is no shortage of things to divide and draw us off the path as we try to follow Jesus. Division and polarization is the dominant, I would argue, it is the dominant feature of the American identity right now. And unfortunately, it's had a way of worming itself into the body of Christ. Further, the world at large has become exceptionally skillful at painting wonderful pictures of all we can have and convincing, that we both, convincing us that we both need and deserve it all. Making things really about us. And Paul warns against these divisions and obstacles that are contrary to this teaching. And he gives two filters for us to consider and utilize to determine whether it's bringing about division and obstacles. The first filter is this. It is the word of God. First filter is the word of God. We've got to ask the question of ourselves this morning. What is the foundation that informs and undergirds what is being shared with us? Is what is being said and encouraged to us consistent with the truth of the authoritative word of God? Is the outworking being demonstrated and encouraged in keeping with what Scripture encourages and it doesn't line up with the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I I encourage you to do the same thing as I teach. As I preach up here and you listen to me, I encourage you to evaluate it, not on what's being said out there, but on what it says in here. And I told you a few weeks ago, I understand that my, my understanding and interpretation is not authoritative. I also said that the Bible doesn't say as, things as clearly as often as we claim they do. If it did, we wouldn't have so many denominations and divisions amongst ourselves as the church. We've got to be willing to, to, to negotiate and talk with one another and, and have conversations. But those conversations must always, first and foremost, be established on this right here, the truth of God's word. It is essential for us to be grounded in the word of God in, that we, in order that we might continue to walk a path that pleases him. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and correctly handles the word of truth. I actually like the King James translation of this better. In the King James translation, it says, study to show yourself approve. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We should be studying this book. Not just on Sundays when I stand up here and talk to you about what it says, but we should be studying it for ourselves It is the word of God that establishes who we are to be in Christ. First filter is God's word. The second filter is who is being served most by our efforts and actions within the church. Paul says, Such people are not serving the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Are we serving the Lord Jesus or are we using him as a means to meet our own ends? Do we join with what God is doing in and through the local church so that we might be well served or in order that we might serve well? Are we seeking to build the kingdom of God or are we using it, we using the kingdom of God to prop up our own castles? 
Matthew 20, Jesus tells his disciples that in the world, it's all about getting others to serve you. It's all about position and prominence and getting yourself to rise to the top so that others are under you, serving you. And Jesus says, not so with you. This is not how it should be amongst my followers. Instead, the first shall be the last and the last shall be first. He says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That, that same sacrifice should be an identifying marker for us as the followers of Jesus Christ. In our market-driven consumer culture, it is easy to forget that God's word is not about us. That his church is not just about me having my needs met first and foremost. That it's not meant to establish our own self-importance or to serve our own priorities and preferences, but to reveal how we should be serving Christ and those to whom he sends us. See, the church was never designed to be a country club where we, as paying members, get our benefits. I've said from the pulpit before, and I'll say it again today, if we do decide that we want to be a country club, can we please put a pool out there or a golf course? Because I want some real benefits. Because if this is all there is as the country club, we're not doing that very well. On the other hand, if this is a hospital to serve the sick, if this is a place that cares for people, if this is a sending agency that prepares us and sends us out into the world to be little Christs in the world, then maybe, just maybe, we have a chance. But the difference is all predicated upon whom are we seeking to serve? Whom is the priority? Are we seeking to be served? By Jesus and his followers, and let's not pretend like it doesn't happen, or are we seeking to serve him and to reach the world he came to save? Now here's the important part about Paul's warning. It's easy for us to look and say Paul is talking about those people, and we need to look out for those people. But the reality is Paul's wording indicates that he doesn't have specific people in mind. He says, beware of such people in the Greek. You know what I think Paul is pointing out here? That if we're not careful, we become such people. That we're not just to guard against these people, to keep them at arm's length, but we're to watch out against us becoming them. Paul's warning isn't just about people out there who might infiltrate our number, but against being and becoming these people in our own lives. Paul notes their obedience but the devil is always looking for ways to distract and drive a wedge to do damage to the church of Jesus Christ. Here's the truth, that our real enemy isn't such people. Our real enemy isn't those people. Our real enemy isn't people at all. Our enemy is the devil, the father of lies, who leads them and us astray. But here's the truth this morning, the battle belongs to the Lord we don't seek to destroy our enemies in our own strength. We trust the battle to the Lord of hosts. Verse 20, Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Finally, it's Christ we serve. And in Christ we stand. We need to keep our eyes on Christ and our faith in his power and purposes in our lives. Verse 25, Paul starts his conclusion in much way, the same way he started his introduction and the, the way he led through the rest of his letter. By turning the focus to the work and person of Jesus and his glory. He says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim against Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden from long ages past. He says, this is all about Jesus. This is all about the mystery of what Christ continues to do in and through us by his power and purposes. And it is all for his glory. Paul speaks of my gospel, his gospel, but Paul reveals very shortly after that he understands that while each of us has our story we must share, it ultimately must point to Jesus. 
That if it's going to make a difference, it can't just be my story. It just can't be your story. But it must ultimately lead to the integration and the involvement of Christ in and through us. Christ makes our stories matter. Because that which was hidden is now being revealed. Salvation by grace through faith for all who would believe. This truth is the core of the gospel. It is the source of our hope and the hope of the world. And it should drive us to share his grace with the world in need. God, ultimately, if any of what Paul has written is going to happen, it will happen through the power and presence of God in and through us. We must consistently turn our attention towards Christ, understanding that he establishes us through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit in us. It is we who must serve him, not he who must serve us. And every aspect of our lives should be lived for his glory according to his purposes. May we constantly remember that we are citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of God. That's the point of the book of Romans as he sends it to these Roman Christians who are dealing with, with the difficulty of living between two worlds, as John Stott says. Living in the difficulty of, of having one foot in the kingdoms of this world, being a citizen that has to walk this globe, and, and another citizenship that is in heaven. And, dis, and, and the battle over which citizenship is going to be dominant. If we are real, my brothers and sisters, we deal with that here in our world today. May we constantly lead into the citizenship as the kingdom of God, understanding that we are all of us strangers in a strange land, and that our heavenly home should be our real home. And our first allegiance and loyalty must always be to Christ and his cross for his glory. May each of us humbly and boldly take our place as parts of the family and kingdom of God. And may his purposes continue to prosper in and through us, that his great salvation might be made known to us and through us for his glory and the good of the world. Father God, I pray that you would continue to work in us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to wrestle with these words of the book of Romans. May we understand that the truth that Paul wrote to these citizens of this kingdom so long ago apply to our lives today. And may we seek to live them out with humility and with grace, but also with boldness and with strength. God, I pray that you would work in and through us to accomplish and do your will for your glory. God, may you continue to speak to us. May you draw us together by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit through the shed blood of Jesus, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.